Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Jennifer Armstrong, the author of Seinfeldia, How a Show About Nothing Changed Everything. She's written eight books. She's also a pop culture historian and a writing coach. Thanks so much for being here, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. This is going to be a show about something. Or is it nothing? Seinfeld, the show, not the person, is always on my mind at least. A day doesn't go by or maybe an hour doesn't go by where I don't encounter something that makes me think of a Seinfeld line. Just some examples. While shopping for medicine, this is tough acting, but this is long lasting. While eating chips, just take one dip and end it. While driving in my car, waving to someone else, yes, go ahead, get in, get in. Or how about wondering if the dry cleaner is wearing your clothes? Is it stealing to take something back that you loan someone? Or are you allowed to go to the same place an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend goes to? Is that based on who broke up with who? Did people think these things before Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, Jennifer? I think they probably did in some way, but I believe strongly that the lasting appeal of Seinfeld is really that they gave us a way to think about these things and they gave us a way to express that. So they were things that were always bugging everyone, but... (laughs) We didn't know, we didn't have clever ways of saying it. And we didn't know how to necessarily say it to other people. You know, it almost felt like, well, isn't this too stupid to even express to other people necessarily? And they said, no, it's not. These are the actual things that make up most of life, right? I mean, not to get too deep too fast, but it really is true that, you know, they're like, they say it's the show about nothing and they have resisted their own label at times uh, in that regard. But it, it's a show about everything in another way. Like, I think it's a show about how your life actually is just made of all of these little tiny moments, all of, many of which can be kind of annoying and kind of funny. And really, you know, life isn't about these big dramatic moments for the most part, the way that other TV shows would make you think. Everything isn't a Grey's Anatomy episode, but everything is kind of a Seinfeld episode. Jerry Seinfeld describes that. I think it's on the DVDs of the shows. Jerry Seinfeld says, we exposed the gaps in society. Is that a a way that you put it? I love that way. I I actually, I mean, he's he's so smart. They're so smart, him and Larry David. Um, And that's the thing is that the show actually is kind of philosophical. You know, I, I think that that's like, like I said, if you, if you just count the big moments that would make it on the most TV shows, most of us wouldn't even have a TV show. But sometimes like you can feel that your day is kind of going like a sitcom and they were able to kind of pick out these little teeny moments. And then, like I said, give them, you know, they're hilarious writers. So they were able to give us these funny little phrases to refer to things that no one had referred to before, like shrinkage or, you know, real and spectacular or, you know, any of these things that like you wouldn't necessarily have wanted to talk about in polite company before, but they made it kind of okay because they made it just, isn't this funny as opposed to some taboo? It's so funny because I was thinking about all the different things that 
really didn't get much airtime on network TV for a long time. And the two things you just mentioned are things that I didn't even think of, but I still thought of like five or six. We're going to get to them in a minute. Um, but your, your book is titled Seinfeldia. And that's a place, you say. You say that Seinfeld has generated a special dimension of existence somewhere between the show and real life. Did they start out trying to do that? And then what is Seinfeldia? I don't think they started out trying to do that. And to be honest, like, I don't think they started out trying to do anything uh, or much, I should say. Um, and that's true of a lot of TV shows or even pop cultural phenomena in general. It's like people make so many TV shows in the world. Most of them don't even get on the air. If they do, they don't last. And as we know from Seinfeld's backstory, you know, it barely kind of crawled through the first few seasons before it became a hit. So, you know, I don't think they were thinking that big before. They were thinking, like, can we make something that's funny? You know, I really think those guys in particular are very, that's, that was always their main goal. And they certainly met and exceeded that. So where um, is Seinfeldia? Well, I think, and I think that this is something, like, you, like we said, that they didn't necessarily mean to do, but it was so good. It started, you know, the bridge between real life and the show that we were just talking about, because it, it is in your everyday ether, if you love the show, that it just started to interact with real life. And this went in particular for as they started to bring in characters who were inspired by real life people. You know, we have everyone from uh, Kenny Kramer, who inspired Cosmo Kramer from day one. He was, you know, uh, Larry David's across the hall neighbor who he had a very similar relationship with and based him on that. And then, you know, all the way through to the soup Nazi who is based, I think we all know on uh, a soup place in Manhattan. And, you know, the guy who played the soup Nazi, Larry Thomas ends up spending the next 20, 30, we could keep going years playing this one character at events and things because people love it so much. You know, all of these different ways that the show has interacted with real life, both these big fictional characters and just the everyday phrases like we were talking about makes it so that it's almost like there's this own little world for Seinfeld fans. And there are a lot of Seinfeld fans. Um, and I always say like Seinfeld fans have their own special language. You mentioned, you know, making these references every day and throwing them out. I think part of why we love that besides just being able to refer to these things that we notice in, in daily life and want to comment on with these Seinfeldian terms, it also allows you, like, I always think of kind of like throwing out a little, like, you know, if, if you see that another person gets it when you make the reference, right. you kind of know, you're like, oh, that's one of my people. And I, I think, totally do that. Right, right. And yeah. it's like, fine, if they don't, like, you're, you know, you're not judging them if they don't, especially if they're younger or whatever. But if you see the other person light up right away, you're like, oh, this is like a person who not only gets the show, which is great, but I think this kind of humor is so special to people that you you assume something even more. You assume a deeper uh, connection the minute somebody outs themselves as a fellow Seinfeld fan because you're like, oh, they're like a smart, smart, funny person who gets it. Right, we're all living in the same plane of existence. Yeah. Um, uh, you said that you didn't think that they started out trying to do anything. But where did they get this idea from, Jerry and Larry, and talk about this trip to the grocery store that you out outline in the book? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously they're trying to do something or else they wouldn't bother at all, <laughs> right. right? But um, I think that with most big artistic ventures like this, like you have to start out just with the basic idea and kind of build from there and see where it goes. But um, they, yeah, they, they basically what happened was Jerry had been approached by NBC because he was a pretty successful stand-up comedian. And someone asked them, asked him if he wanted to do a show, which was pretty standard operating procedure, especially at that time, but even still today, probably. And he didn't have any ideas, but he was like, I'll take the meeting because I'm not an idiot and took the meeting and then kind of was like, okay, now I have to figure out if I have any ideas. And he approached Larry David, his fellow stand-up comedian who he really liked and liked his sensibility and also knew that Larry had written for the show called Fridays, which was basically a Saturday Night Live ripoff that was running for a while. And he basically said about that, well, at least this guy's written for TV before. He might mm -hmm. have some ideas. And they were walking through a Korean deli in New York City and kind of just riffing on stuff. You can totally, I feel like you can just knowing those two the, as well as we know know them now, it's like you can imagine the banter that goes on when they're walking through anything they're kind of commenting on everything and larry said this is something you don't see on tv a show that's just two guys talking and what i always like to add as a caveat to wannabe tv writers out there is true and it was really successful that they started with this idea and built on it but it can't just be any two guys talking i don't think um these two guys talking in particular turns out to be something What's amazing is that the exact situation you're talking about of Larry and Jerry talking um, starts or it becomes an entire season of Seinfeld. And so now they're living on the show in the reality, in what was once only in reality and then started to bleed into the show and actually became the show. So Seinfeldia also has like a TV counterpart, which is also what we see Larry doing with Curb. This is exactly it. I think that that's, what's, that's part of what struck me is the ways that it keeps like going back and forth between the TV world and reality and it's constantly interacting with it and then builds into something else. It like, it's almost like it doesn't, I mean, it hasn't stopped yet, right? Cause we probably will get more Curb and we've gotten Curb pretty recently. So the fact that then, yes, Larry goes on to get the show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, because he's the guy who made Seinfeld. It's specifically that. And it is him, him playing himself, the guy who created Seinfeld. They end up having that great reunion season on Curb for Seinfeld. Phenomenal, right. It's really- They have the set uh, and everything. Yeah, it's really it one of incredible. my favorite like things that has happened in pop culture, period. Mm -hmm. It was the only way they could ever do it. They would never do just like a cheesy, I don't, I don't think, who knows? I don't think I could see them doing a straightforward kind of reunion special or anything like that. Um, so this was just perfect for them. And then, yeah, it just allows that this interaction to go on endlessly. And I would say even something like, you know, comedians in cars getting coffee, uh, Jerry's show now has had, you know, he's had, 
Michael Richards on. He's had all of them on, yeah. um, you know, and we got to see, I mean, in some ways, full circle. It, it was basically an episode where it was Larry and Jerry talking for the duration of an episode. And it was exactly what had inspired Seinfeld to begin with. And you could see that. they. I remember that they were riffing on like pancakes and like Larry's eating habits and all of this stuff. And you understand then when you see them why this could make at least the basis of a show. I think eventually it obviously grows into something more than just Jerry and George talking. So how do they invent the characters? Um, and then how did they cast them? And then the, the obvious question is, which came first, the actor or the, char- or the character? Are we watching Jason Alexander or are we watching George or are we watching Larry? Larry. <laughs> and how do we all tie this all together? Who are yeah, these people? That's another thing. That's another thing that I think makes it, makes the Seinfeldian-ness of it. I think it's, you know, it's just occurring to me right now, in fact, that I think it's part of this whole thing is just their actual um, willingness to interact with real life, essentially. And it was, now everybody has, you know, we've had a million shows since that's like a comedian playing a terrible version of himself or whatever. Um, But that wasn't done then as much. You know, it was more like a comedian would get a show and then he'd play like a family guy, you know, who makes some of his jokes from his stand-up routines. But this was really supposed to be a version of Jerry, but obviously in an alternate dimension, a fictional dimension. But this was Jerry the comedian, Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, living his life with these fictional friends. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of it came from real life inspirations. They were not afraid of that. And in fact, Larry embraced it. Larry often required it from his writers when they were pitching later. He wanted to hear things that had really happened to them in real life um, that were funny and that they could use. So he started out with that rule for himself to begin with. And so, yes, I mean, I think it's clear, even though it seems like they didn't make it super clear right away that George is based on Larry David, you know, um, Jason. I'm sorry to interrupt, but the odd thing is that then in Curb, Larry is then resentful of when people say, you were the idiot on Seinfeld, but he yep. really, he couldn't be. He really couldn't be because he wrote it that way. Right. I know. Um, it's so it's, odd. They're very cranky too, is the other thing. You just have <laughs> right. to know that because one of the other things they hate is when people say it's the show about nothing and they're the ones who wrote that. So like, you know, don't know what to tell you. Well, what do you mean nothing? <laughs> but um Sorry, go ahead. So so it, then Julia Louis and, and yeah. yeah. Um so Larry, I mean, I remember like Jason Alexander's talked about, for instance, that they didn't tell him that this was Larry. And so when he first went in to audition, or he did it on tape, but you know, um he blatantly did like a Woody Allen thing because that was how that the show sort of struck him, and I think that's right. And it's very funny to watch the early episodes because you could really see him doing Woody Allen in those episodes. It's very funny. And then a couple episodes in, I think it might, I could be getting this wrong and I feel like it's in the book, but it's something like maybe the episode where he quits and then goes back to work afterwards. And he poisons his boss, yeah. Yeah, and that's like, that's something that Larry had done and that Jason basically questioned something like that, where he said like, who like who would do this? Why would this happen? And Larry said, well, it happened to me. And that's when Jason realized, oh, Oh, I should start doing you I'm playing here. Larry, right? Yeah. And then I do think he turns into his own special thing as the show goes on, because that is a character who really just, I mean, they kind of put him through it. You know what I mean? Like they just make him more and more 
sort of pathetic and miserable at times when they started having him live with his parents and yeah, you know and, all and at the of beginning this of stuff. the show he he was he was a real estate agent and he was yeah. employed he was gainfully employed uh, yeah George he was, was. The, sort of i always say especially the pilot is funny to watch because it's really off from the rest of the show yeah. um my favorite fact about the pilot is that um george gives jerry girl advice and you're like no that's not how this is going to ultimately go at all um jerry does not have girlfriend problems later at all that he needs george's help with so yeah so we've got like they start out with these connections i think to real life figures you know um same goes for as we mentioned kramer who is really based on a guy named kenny kramer they even paid him a little bit for his last name and so so i want to i want to ask you about kramer real quick yeah. because when you when you watch the the DVDs and the behind the scenes stuff, you get the feeling that you really sort of know Jerry Seinfeld and you know Julia Louis and you sort of know Jason Alexander just from watching them act so much and the way they play their characters. You sort of get the sense that they're kind of bleeding into one mm-hmm. another. Right. But when you watch Michael Richards play Kramer and you see the outtakes and you see um, the interviews that they do with him, he is so deadly serious he is. he's a completely different person than the character and so i don't know that i have an actual question about this i'm just making an observation it's a funny observation i guess that that michael richards is just um much more of a precise and i don't want to say artful because they're all all artful but he's much more of a precise and sort of um cerebral presence as he's acting he's yeah, he's a, he's a real, I feel like in some ways, this isn't exactly true, but it happens on a lot of shows. I feel like every, every great sitcom ends up with like the one method actor who they're all like, okay, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, he never laughs in the outtakes yeah, or anything. He hated when people broke. That was one of the big things. It's like, he's one of the funniest people alive. And he hated when people would laugh in the scene and wreck it and he'd have to do it over again. Like, and he'd be just off in the corner kind of like studying his script or like he liked to wear Kramer's shoes to get into character. He liked to stay in character. Um, Yeah. There's, there's often one very serious kind of difficult person on a set. It's like part of the whole thing. I mean, I think it's great. It seemed like, he was not so much to handle that they couldn't handle it. And also it does seem like, honestly, the rest of them, from my perspective and from what I've heard, sound like such like pleasant people to work with in general. Um, you know, I think Jerry can be cranky even in his public persona, but it seems like he was really like pretty good to work for and with, especially with his fellow actors. And Julia and Jason just strike me as like two of the nicest people ever in Hollywood, which is a very funny thing given who they were playing. But um, yeah, you know, I think that the rest of them were pretty laid back about it and could handle it. And you have to admit that his results at least were spectacular. So, um, and that was a different kind of character though. Like you said, it does feel like there are elements of the others in them in their characters whereas like kramer himself is more of a cartoon you know like kramer you don't i mean i love him and i love him as a character but i don't think you feel like you got to like his inner 
soul. Not that the other two were exactly exposing their inner soul, but I don't know. There was, there was stuff that was a little more human that bled through, I think, for them. The rule that they come up with early on, Jerry and Larry, um, is so different than the way sitcoms were going at that time. Um, I think of Full House because that was about the age, but, but um, Saved by the Bell and Family Matters and all these other shows, they end up with a lesson and a hug. And mm -hmm. um, Jerry describes it as you had to have, watch these shows and take something away from you when you turn the TV off that you learn something about yourself. But the rule that Jerry and Larry came up with went completely against where pop culture was at that time, which was no learning and no hugging. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can even, I think it might even be more interesting to think of the shows that were great at the time that were also really popular, but still very different, like a Golden Girls or Cheers. Like Cheers, those were on yeah. around, I mean, Cheers sort of predates it a little and this comes after, but like those are both shows that are great and totally rewatchable. And we, we acknowledge their genius, but they still would never, like they're still so different from, or then later, like it, you know, Friends comes in and becomes like the, um, the sort of, they have kind of a sibling rivalry with, with Seinfeld. And that show is literally, it could just be called hugging and learning to a lot, maybe not so much learning, but lots of hugging and sex. Um, you know, like there's lots of feeling on that. That show is just, pure feeling all the time. And this is a show that just said like, nope, it's not what we're doing. And it, again, I think also adds to that sort of like philosophical feeling that Seinfeld has that very few other shows, especially at that, you know, network sitcoms would have, I mean, they were basically doing like Beckett, you know, for, for television um, to some extent there, I feel like there are shades of Beckett and Sartre in there and really stripping it down and saying like, our main thing is to be funny. And that is it. How did a Seinfeld production happen? Um, what was the process that they went through? And um, uh, where did this production fit into the way TV had been done at that time? They did a number of things quite different. And I, again, I feel like so much of it just evolved, I, which I love. I think it's so interesting to see something have enough time to evolve in front of us. And they really felt their way towards some of this. One of the big thing that, things that struck me when I was doing my research that I found incredibly interesting was the writing process, which is that as the show went on, Larry couldn't, you know, at first he was literally basically writing all the episodes and then realized he was going to have to have a staff or he was going to really break down soon. So they would go through this process where they'd hire a bunch of mostly guys um, each season, often turn over most of them, like a few stuck around, Pete Melman and a couple others, Larry Charles stuck around multiple seasons because they really nailed the sensibility of the show. But most of them were sort of brought in, they were often stand-up comedians, they would be brought in to essentially like mine their real lives for storylines and bring in pitches. And they worked really um, independently, which is unusual still to this day. Most, most shows have writer's rooms where everybody throws stuff out and then like riffs together and then comes up with stories together. And then finally it might be sent off with one writer to finish the actual script, but it's often very collaborative. This was like, you had to pitch, you as an individual writer, 
had to basically find Larry and Jerry in the hallway, which is terrifying in itself, and just pitch them um, stories. And you'd have to get four stories approved. You did one for each character um, before you could go off and then write a script. And then you would go off and write a script by yourself. So this was a very sink or swim atmosphere. Some people really, it did not thrive. A couple did. And either way, you had a Seinfeld credit on your resume and that was great. But the four stories in itself, the, even that was pretty unusual. Like most shows, the, like the ones we were just talking about, would have what they'd call an A story and a B story. The main story, and then there was like a funny little thing that was out going on on the side for some other character underneath to keep it going. This had four stories in 22 minutes. And they were equal. And they were pretty equal. And then the other big thing that evolved that Larry just stumbled upon while writing a script once and loved it so much that he kept it and made it a rule and it became a hallmark, which was that the four stories ne weren't necessarily at all related upon first you know, glance. When you'd first hear them, it was just these four random funny things that a writer had pitched. And then the big thing was to try to take those four unrelated things and bring them together as much as possible by the end in a surprising way. And so like one of my favorite examples of this was The Marine Biologist. Where, the best episode, but, I, I'm gonna, but, I, but I'm going to give my five, my top no, five later. But that's, go ahead. It's my favorite too. And this is partly why is because at the end, this is a great example of putting two totally unrelated things together. If people don't remember, George has pretended to be a marine biologist to impress a date. I uh, thought he wouldn't get called on it, but of course they go on a walk on the beach and someone calls for a marine biologist and he is either has to come clean or go save the whale, which of course he's George. So instead of telling the truth, tries to go save the whale, he in fact succeeds and pulls a golf ball from the blowhole or whatever, I don't know what we call that. And it turns out to be, we know immediately when we hear this, that um, it, that's gonna tie in with the fact that Kramer has been shooting golf balls off like the coast of New York into the water and he says, is that a Titleist? And we already know that it is and that that was the kind of golf ball he was using. So that to me is a perfect example. You didn't know, like while George is giving this great speech at the end about how he saved the whale, you've forgotten about everything else because it's so good and funny. And then they throw the golf ball at you and it's just like this great surprise. And they would do this a lot. And it was part of the sort of ballet that they ended up choreographing every week on the show. The show starts to take on really edgy things um, just for a few, but you remembered others that I didn't. The contest, the sponge, not that there's anything wrong with it, abortion, faking it, casual sex. Um, at what point does the network back off and say, okay, you can just do what you want and where do these, where was TV at this point and how did they get away with all of this? I think that the contest is when like everything came together for the first time on this front. Um, because hilariously, like something like the Chinese restaurant came before it, which is not edgy in the sense that you're talking about. Um, just plot wise, it basically had no plot except they wait for a table at a Chinese restaurant and don't get in. And the network pushed back on that one. And it was only because Larry insisted and basically said he'd quit 
um, that they got that on and turned out to be a huge success, at least critically. Critics loved it and got people talking. And so the contest was the next level of that. The contest was um, not that long into the show. And it really, I think, has been recognized as like the first big, big, big water cooler moment for it. But they were already doing well enough that they wrote this episode about essentially a masturbation contest, trying to not masturbate as long as possible. And they kind of figured, and they were often playing a game with themselves. And a lot of, a lot of people actually in television would do this, where they kind of like, let's see what they say about this one, you know? And they were surprised when the censors didn't say anything. And they were like, okay, I guess we're making- But they did it without saying it. They didn't- Yeah, that's the thing. That's the whole key is that even when I always, you know, when I'm talking about it and want to remind people like, this is the masturbation contest episode, like it's inherently unfunny to, the minute you say it out loud, it's already less funny. The minute you explain the episode. Um, I think it, the entire reason it's funny is that they never say it and all these different ways they come up with of saying, you know, um, queen of the castle, lord of the manor, all of that stuff that they, master, master of my domain is first, obviously, and then they do all these riffs and variations on it. And it's not just that, there's also the other stuff they do in that episode where like whoever is out of the contest, like is shown sleeping well that right. night and the others and like the way that Jerry and George by the end are just like fighting with each other because they're still in the contest. All of that stuff. It's like, if you're too young to know what it is, you have no idea what this episode's about. You just don't know. Cause everything is just like the clearest they get is the beginning when he says like, he had a glamour magazine and it was at his mother's, you know, all of that. One but thing led to another. One right. thing led to another. And that's <laughs> it. Like, that's all we get. Um, hilariously enough, I have since run into someone who worked at Glamour at that time. It was a very big deal for them to really? <laughs> they talked about it the next day. Like Jay Peterman when they got the drop too on that. Exactly. Day. Exactly. Um, but that was the brilliance of that episode was that they weren't saying anything. And, and to me, I don't want to sound like a prude because I'm definitely not one, but like there, there is a little bit of a beauty to network television in this way, the, the way it has parameters and makes, I think it forces some of the best creative moments at times when we might never have an episode like the contest if it weren't on network television. And like I said, if you had done the same episode on cable and said whatever you wanted, I kind of think it'd be gross. I don't know. Like that's just it would, They would have gone too far and lost yeah. the- Like the... I don't want to hear about that then. It's right. only funny because they can't say it. And honestly, a huge to me choice and I can't prove or disprove whether this made or braid broke, broke the episode, but their decision to include- um, Elaine yeah. in the contest, which they debated behind the scenes. And I like that they acknowledge, they kind of have the conversation on screen and they give her, um, what do you call that? Oh, odds. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Odds. Odds. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah, like that. <laughs> I just, goes, no, a thousand. <laughs> right. And also she, I'm just going to argue right now. She had the best of the four uh, plot lines on that. The JFK junior yeah. is like, brilliant like it's so good and she is this is i mean she's always good but i i think of this performance like where she's almost like hanging off of the 
desk when she learned at the right, gym when right. she learns that JFK Jr. is in her class and he asked about her. Um, and the way we never see him and the way that ends up tying into the virgin yes. stuff with Jerry is just like, this is again, and this is a great, I mean, I actually say that marine biologist is my favorite, but I think the, the contest is the most perfect in the sense that it's maybe the only time, one of the only times all four are kind of on the same track and we know that. It's not like that brings it together in a weird way at the end that we like we know they're all in the contest, but they each have individual storylines, but then they still have a surprise at the end with the Virgin and JFK Jr. So it's just like a perfectly constructed little episode. But it's not just Junior, it's Junior. Junior. <laughs> John F. Kennedy Junior. junior. I junior. always think of let's it's like genius. Her, her performance in that episode. Stunning. Is so, it's amazing. So good. And I think that after that, like that was one and then more of a this isn't sex stuff, but like um, just in terms of like edginess or darkness, I know another big turning point for them was the Junior Mint episode. Yes, another and brilliant when, episode. Yeah. When Jerry says, let's go wash them, slice this fat bastard up. And he's talked about this. And I think you, if you rewatch that episode, you can see on his face, because he knows he's not that good an actor and he doesn't always hide what he's thinking in the moment as, as the person. You can see him like go like, I can't believe they're gonna about, about to let me say this on television, but I'm going to. And after that, they were just like, they knew they could do anything. And this show became so, so popular that like, the thing is networks only have something to say about what you're doing until you start making unbelievable amounts of money for them. And then they're like, well. Yeah, all of a sudden it's fine, right? <laughs> yeah. Why not? Who said yeah. you can't talk about but it that? it was, I do really believe that this show in terms of the, the sex stuff and sex and dating stuff, it is important to think of what TV was like at that time too, and that we were more in the Cheers and Golden Girls were the leading edge of how like risque you could get. And that you wouldn't, you didn't have these kinds of discussions about dating, these sort of ways that they would d dissect their dates kind of dispassionately and the sex stuff. I mean, we've got, you know, you mentioned the sponge worthy, we've got the, there's a lot of the lane stuff that's really risk risque, like the saxophone player she dates and his right. mouth is too tired um, to do other things. And like, there's a lot of stuff that they push the envelope on because of, again, the way that they come up with these cute ways of talking about them, like sponge worthy. And I do think that they, you know, I wrote a book about Sex and the City too, and Sex and the City kind of comes right toward the end of Seinfeld. And I feel like there's a connection there. The ways that the women on Sex and the City sort of dissect their dates and their sex lives together come up with the phrases, they do the same thing to a large extent. They come up with their own little phrases for, you know, they, but they're cl much clearer, like funky spunk or whatever. And, you know, I think that they really take a page from what Seinfeld had been doing. And I often like to imagine Elaine hanging out with the Sex and the City women. I think they'd get along. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. So um, there's a point where the show starts to do incredibly well, as you just said. That was at a point in my life where my parents were actually, I remember on Thursday nights, they would screen it and then they would see if it was something that they could let me watch as a 12 or 13 or 14 year old boy, especially with them. They might not have cared if I watched it on my own, but not with them. Um, uh, so 
what is happening in TV and as this show gets more and more popular, how much power does it take on in the moment, in those mid-90s, 95, 96, 97? I mean, it's just beyond anything. The, so one of the ways I explain it is, you know, often when I do interviews about this book, people say things to me like, oh, are you a big Seinfeld fan? And the way I always answer is like, I grew up in the 90s. Like, I don't even know, I don't feel like, I don't, I, I feel like I can't claim like, oh yeah, I'm the biggest Seinfeld fan because it's like, you didn't make that choice in the 90s. If you watched television, you watched Seinfeld. Like, that's just, it wasn't, I'm, I know there are exceptions and believe me, people love to tell me they are the one person who is so incredibly special that they didn't watch Seinfeld. But, you know, it really was such a force of nature. And we had, we still had also mass culture at that time in a way that we may never have quite again. Yeah. You know, there were only a, a limited number of networks that were really making you know, television, it wasn't like now where it's like everybody makes original programming. There were really only, you know, let's go with five five options or so in prime time. And you would choose one. And most of the time, especially NBC in the 90s on Thursday night, that's what everybody watched. There were these shows in between Seinfeld and Friends that got things like 40 million viewers a week because, you know, and they were awful and no one is, no one's like going to write a book about the single guy, but it got more viewers than like our Super Bowls get now. That's not quite right. But it was, you know, really up there in a way that we're just never going to see again. And so you would like what you would do in the nineties is you had to watch Seinfeld on Thursday night because otherwise you were going to go to school or work or whatever on Friday and everybody was gonna be saying some nonsense that you weren't gonna understand. They were all gonna be running around saying no soup for you or something. Right. And if you didn't watch the, the, the night before, you were out of luck. And so you just watched it. And that was just the way it was. And it became so huge as it went on. And I really think also, I talk about this in the book, it's one of the first toward those, those last few years that like becomes this you start to see the way we're going to watch TV in the 2000s and beyond from the way that Seinfeld was starting to be discussed and treated. So like there would be, it was really only things like newspaper stories at the time, but you know, there were like the New York newspapers would be running poll daily, weekly polls. Is it better or worse than last year? Is this one better or worse than last week? Um, you know, when the finale came up, it was pandemonium. I mean, this was just like, they had to, they had paparazzi coming over the walls at the studio to try to get a glimpse of what might happen. This was the first time we started to see the internet talk a little bit about, you know, on message boards and things and everybody was speculating about what might happen on the finale. Like this was not done before. Like shows used to just sort of like get, they would canceled. end. Yeah. yeah they they would just end. ended. Yeah. And often very unceremoniously, sometimes they wouldn't know. Sometimes they would end a season and then over the summer they'd get canceled and they'd be like, all right, well, I guess that's that. And this was one of the first, I mean, we had others. There were things like the MASH finale Mash, or whatever yeah. throughout history, but like it, this was not, now we do this with every show. I feel like every week there's some new show, somebody's like, everyone's freaking out on the internet about their finale. Um, but this was just a really unusual situation and they were making insane amounts of money for NBC. Like there's all kinds of crazy statistics about how basically like 
NBC was able to buy the Olympics for the foreseeable future, be partly mainly because of the Seinfeld money, things like that. Like it was really, it could do anything it wanted. I mean, it was just Seinfeld and friends were like it in the nineties. The show does change at the end of season seven. The show does change after Larry David leaves. Does it show that Larry had the magic formula? And it's not that those episodes afterwards weren't funny. It's just that they were a little bit more gimmicky. They, were, they went a little bit further in what they let the characters do that would have been outside reality. Um, you know, the bizarro Jerry, they meet people who are just like them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, off the top of my head, uh, you know, Elaine has a guy working in her uh, at the magazine or a, a Jay Peterman, I guess, that has that is dressed in army fatigues all the time. They just go a little bit further in what they let the characters kind of explore. So was it Larry that had the magic formula? And why was it so much tougher for them to write the same kinds of episodes they had written in the first seven seasons? I do think, I mean, I think we can all acknowledge that Larry David is just a genius. And so no one will be insulted if we say that, you know, he did, I mean, he invented the show and he had a darkness too, that I think they lost um, in those last few seasons. And that can be, you know, you might think that's good or bad, but the way I always explain it, and I did not realize this till I wrote this book. Sometimes you, you know, cause you don't take the time to like lay out the exact timeline of how things happened until you're doing something like this. It wasn't until I was writing this that I realized that his final episode is when um, Susan George's Susan fiance dies. dies. Yeah. To me, I mean, that's a pretty big mic drop moment. He's like, kills. Um, that was. I remember watching that and be like, being a little like, oh, I don't know how I feel right now. Like, I felt weird watching it. Um, it was so dark. It was just like this episode where a kind of main character, a main character's fiance, dies, and everybody shrugs and like goes for coffee. Um, and kind of acknowledges that they're happy she's dead. Like it's a little, it's a little bleak. And George had been trying to get out of this right, right. For, for weeks. I mean, know? to be honest, it's an actually brilliant and hilarious it's incredible, setup. Yeah. Like to say, like, what if you really wanted to get out of your wedding and your fiance then died? Um, it would be really awkward, and that is the point. But um, to me, that's so indicative because they did have to sort of dig out of that a little in the, when they came back the next season and they did, he had the foundation and things like that. But, um, you know, after that, like you said, what I think happened, it, I always think of it as more cartoonish. It's like, you can almost literally imagine it being animated at times, the way that it gets so big, the show, um, there's the frogger. I was just thinking of the frogger. Right. It's just a lot of like silly things that, like you said, are kind of gimmicky. And, you know, Larry's rule had been, he wanted the writers to come in with pitches that at least started with something that had really happened to them. And his reasoning was then they can go crazy. They can do all their little Seinfeld things to kind of go like, what to me, I think they're always thinking, what is the worst that could happen? Like marine biologist is a great example. You lie about your profession to a date, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Well, someone could call for a marine biologist, you know? (laughs) And that's kind of, that is what made it feel like, like it was connected to you. And so, yeah, there's this feeling later. I mean, I also think of Merv Griffin show episode, really funny, um, kind of nuts though. And it's not like you watch that and then went like, oh, this relates so strongly to something that happened to me in my own real life. Like, no, 
that's it not, never would have happened in the first seven seasons. No, I yeah. think, and I think that that was what his, he was going for sort of a little more of a philosophical bent that maybe they lost. And one thing they said to me when I was interviewing people about this is that the writing staff of the last two seasons, by the way, chock full of people who have gone on to do unbelievable things like Dave Mandel, who was a showrunner at Veep for the last few seasons. Like they've gone, done unbelievable stuff, but they were pretty young when they came to the show. And it's kind of wild to think, but it basically was a batch of people who had grown up watching the show and then got hired to write it. So, it, you know, they were young and they also were more like fans as much as the as writers of the show. So it's almost like part of it is, what if you gave a show to the fans and said like, it's like them playing with dolls about their show or something. That's the best way I can explain it. It's like, they were just doing stuff that they were like, wouldn't it be funny if Kramer had a talk show, you know, or whatever. And then they get to do it. Right? And they get to do it and they're not wrong. And it's enjoyable. And some of the best episodes, you know, we, we still got the soup Nazi and the Elaine dance and things like that in those last two seasons, but some crazy stuff too. Sometimes, uh, and this is like the serious question. Um, sometimes okay. I see a moment on Seinfeld that makes me wince by today's standards. It's sexist or racist or anti-LGBT. Mm -hmm. Just for a moment, they make jokes about people who are overweight. I'll give you some quick examples. Hispanics in the show always had an accent and are not, or sort of an overdone accent and not accepted by the group. They're always on the outside. Jerry and George say there's nothing wrong with that, which was advanced for its time, but yeah. now you don't even have to say that. Right. Elaine dates every guy she meets until there's a black marathon runner staying in her house with her. Does the show, even though it's still funny, hold up culturally still? I think it mostly does. I, but there are definitely those moments, but literally everything made before like five to 10 years ago, I think. And I think we've all, I've had this now because we're all watching so much and we're just like digging deep into the archives to watch old things. I've watched things this year that I'm like, Bridget Jones's diary, which I loved and always, you know, then I watch again. I'm like, is this an entire episode, entire movie about me too? Um, like, it's just yeah, like right. everything that happened. That, and there's know, sex, made. there is a lot of sex harassment on that show too, between right. the bosses and the underlings that's true. all the time. And I mean, yeah. my God, if you're, that's one thing that I feel like in almost everything that happened before, when you watch stuff now, you're like, no, you can't do that at work. Um, so yeah, I think it does generally hold up. I think it definitely has its moments that make us wince like everything. And especially because there is this, this there's a streak in the show and in Larry and uh, Jerry that wants to push on those issues a little. And at times that means they go too far in the wrong. I think of the cigar store Indian as a really good example. Yeah, that's, that was really not great. And not yeah. even that funny. It's yeah. like one thing, there's there's a there's an element where like you can if you hit the exact right thing, you know, place on this kind of spectrum, it can be very funny, right? If you can get the exact right way. I mean, what I would say about not that there's anything wrong with that is that the the thing, the reason that still kind of works and actually won a GLAD award in its day. Yeah. Um, okay. crazy, I know, but it's because the joke is not about the gay people. The joke is about how stupid Larry and Jerry are. 
So I think if when they err on the side of making fun of themselves, it works. It's when they go, I think fat jokes are a great example. And this is rampant in stuff from that time too. Watch Friends, my God. Um, <laughs> Friends is a cringeworthy nightmare from start to finish in terms of the stuff. They do so many gay jokes and they do so many fat jokes. Um, but I think at times, yeah, they were trying to, you know, they're, they're at their best when they're basically making fun of, I would say, liberal, you know, liberal kind of city dweller hypocrisy is essentially what they're making fun of and not that there's anything wrong with that. Like they know what they're supposed to say, but they're also kind of uncomfortable. But then there are other times when, you know, it's a little weird. The question that I always wonder about as I watch these episodes again and again, and I know what's coming and I've seen them all a thousand times and I, I know what I can probably just look at one screenshot from an episode and know what episode it is. Um, is there a part of us that wishes for that world? No real responsibilities. I have close friends. We can sort of burn the world down around us and not worry about it. Is there something really deep inside of us that longs to live in Seinfeld? I think so. I really do. I mean, I've had so many people tell me that they can't go to sleep at night without watching a rerun of Seinfeld one way or another, whether they record them, you know, on TBS or whatever, or watch them on streaming now. Um, and I, it, it's funny. It is a funny, it comes up a lot as a question to me because it's like not your typical comforting show, like, like a friend's. You can sort of see, sure, why wouldn't you want to live with a bunch of beautiful people and an unrealistic New York city where you can always get a seat at the coffee shop, you know? Um, but Seinfeld's a little different, right? It's like not warm and fuzzy, but people do find comfort in it. And I think it is so much of its time in a sense, in this way, like for a certain kind of person, the nineties were pretty comfortable for people like the people in Seinfeld, <laughs> you know, there were, very, yeah. there, it wasn't like now it's not like where, these, you, this would not work now. You can't make this show now because you'd be like, why are these idiots not, like they never talk about politics. They're not concerned about the state of the world. They're not trying to help make things better. They are only interested in themselves, but it was a very 90s feeling. And like you said, having this one group of friends, very few cares as far as I can discern, um, endless people to date, you know, they don't have social media and cell phones to bug them all the time. And they can just sort of like, hang, it's, it's a hangout comedy. And I think hangout comedies are inherently appealing even more so right now. Top five episodes. Can I give you mine? Yeah, do it. Okay. Um, now, uh, you did mention one that maybe I would swap out, but I'm not sure which one I'd swap it out for. <laughs> but let me give you the five. Uh, I, I'll go just no particular order. The Marine Biologist. Mm -hmm. The Switch, which mm -hmm. is where we learn Kramer's first name and where Jerry and George come up with this plan for Jerry to switch roommates, uh, switch girlfriends who are both roommates. The Opposite, where George goes through yep. and lives his life op in diff completely differently from his instinct. And there's one point where he goes, instinct. <laughs> <laughs> and Kramer gets to go on Kat Regis and Kathy Lee. Mm -hmm. uh, the Boyfriend, because they brought the real Keith Hernandez into their fake world. And the fake world is also part of the real world. A great episode. And then yep. I would say the contest, but I might swap out the junior men for the contest. Yeah, Junior men's definitely up there for me. Sponge worthy and 
you know, kind of the Elaine type episode. I'm, I'm just like partial to Elaine in a general sense. Um, like I can remember actually really feeling like, I don't know if I could have loved the show as much. I'm so glad they brought her in because mm. she's a, a national treasure, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and B having that woman in there to, as a sort of like touch point for women watching was really critical. Made it okay. made it better too when they sort of like, I don't know, the way they were about Jerry's girlfriends and stuff. It made it sort of a little bit okay that they at least had Elaine around. Um, and I'm trying to think of any others that I would throw in there. I mean, I do sort of love Soup Nazi. I, it mm -hmm. sort of feels almost pointless to say in a way. It's so classic, uh, but it is a perfect Seinfeldian situation that came later. You know, that was one of the later ones. And um, that feels ripe for Seinfeld, something that we didn't talk about, but I think another hallmark of Seinfeld is it's very, I think it's really good at New York life. And one of the yeah. biggest things it's good about is obviously it's not even shot here in New York. So it's not that we know it's fake, but they get some of the New York life stuff, right? And that's soup Nazi. It's like, there's certain characters throughout the show that do this, where it's like, this is very New York. The New York shopkeepers get to make the rules. That's how it works, especially if they have something you really want. The line and, for the cookie dough, I remember. Yes, yeah, yes. The line for the cookie, so yeah. like, they do it even very early on. There's a very early, might even be the first, it's one of the first episodes where there's some stuff that goes on at the laundromat. Yeah, second, um, first or second. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a good, they do totally it. Totally New York, yeah. You know, like even the library book to some extent, it's not exactly a New York thing, but it's like this idea that there are certain people in, in your sort of, I don't know what you'd call that, like service people in your world who can have so much power over you that, you know, or the, the car reservation, they took the reservation, but they did not hold the reservation is something that I kept talking about this summer because Zipcar did this like three times to us this summer. <laughs> they said we had a reservation and then they were like, nope, you don't. So it comes back all the time. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about Seinfeldia, um, but I do want to have you talk about your new book. Uh, it's coming out in a few months. Your new book is called When Women Invented Television. It's your yes. eighth book. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, it is about the time period between 1948 and 1955 when TV was not terribly profitable yet, or I should say at all profitable yet, and they were still figuring everything out. And it turns out to be that women did way more than we really have known they did or have been told about before because when things aren't profitable yet, often um, the men don't want to be there. The white men don't want to be there yet. And they were still off running radio, happy to make their money because that was the big thing then. So a lot of women and people of color kind of saw the opportunity pretty early and pioneered a lot of the forms that uh, would ultimately become things like sitcoms and variety shows and stuff like that. And kind of then got dropped out of history. So the way that I um, explain it is it's basically like a hidden figures for early television. Jennifer Armstrong, author of Seinfeldia, how a show about nothing changed everything. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Certainly check out that book and also the book we just mentioned, When Women Invented Television, and also her Twitter profile at JMK Armstrong and, her also, and also her website, jenniferkarmstrong.com. I also want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. 
And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, a show about something, a show about nothing, no, a show about plenty of stuff. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>